You're listening to The Lament Configuration, a podcast about shit that makes us sad. I'm your host, graphic novelist Julia Graffer, and with me is... Gretchen Felker-Martin, horror author and film critic. And today we're going to be taking listener questions. We sure are, Julia. We sure are, Gretchen, which... If you're listening to this, you probably know because you probably saw us asking for questions about an hour ago. Well, it it won't be an hour ago when they listen to this. That's right. You probably saw us asking for questions a month ago. (laughs) (laughs) I hate editing the podcast so fucking much. It's the worst. (laughs) I know. It sucks. It's so boring. We should just pay someone to do it. I would feel better about paying somebody to do it if we were making money from the podcast, but I don't want to make money from the podcast. Yeah, fair enough. Besides, like, what would be a fair wage for that? I have I'm no I'm sure somebody play. who has those skills could tell us what they should get paid for it. Do we really want to pay $50 per episode for the privilege of having a podcast? No. No. Jesus, no. What are we, millionaires? I don't even... I, I, I know this is our 20th episode, but I, I'm not fully committed to the fact that we have a podcast. That's still... We could walk away from this shit tomorrow. I know. We could walk away from it right now. Yeah, good night, Gretchen. Yeah, good night, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> I still want to talk to you, though. Yeah, that's how I feel. Like, the podcast is honestly, I don't care about having a podcast, but I like an excuse to spend time with you every week. Yeah, me too. It's cool that people listen to it. Yeah, it is. It's like indulging two of our favorite pastimes, which is hanging out and people telling us how great we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are both really good. Yeah, two, two great tastes that taste great together. Maybe we should just stop editing it. There's a thought. (laughs) You think people would put up with all the ums and ahs and long pauses? I don't know. They feel... uh, God damn it. (laughs) It feels... When I'm listening to it, when I'm editing it, I'm like, Jesus, there's so many pauses. But maybe when, when people are hearing it for the first time, they just mentally filter it out. So... Yeah, I am curious. I certainly, um, I was really zealous about editing out pauses the first few times that I did it. Yeah, you were. And then I basically stopped unless they were like 10 seconds long and I haven't heard boo about it. Mm -hmm. And also it's not like we are super concerned about pleasing everyone. That's true. No offense. Having said that, uh, tell us what you think about pauses in the Discord or add us on Twitter. Yeah, we, we would really love it if you just gave us your opinion. Yeah, and if it's that everything we're doing is great and we should continue, then we'll take that under advisement. Otherwise, fuck off. Probably. Yeah. So, do you want to jump into questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This comes from Bony Soups. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. What are some of your favorite meals in fiction? I've been thinking about this one since she posted it, and I can't think of any fiction meals that I am have feelings about at all. Um, I mean, I'm definitely as susceptible to the way that Miyazaki animates food as anyone else is. I find that very appealing, and I definitely want to eat it every time I see it. I would like to have a lemon cake from uh, Song of Ice and Fire. That's I really like lemon flavored desserts. That always sounds so nice. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a Song of Ice and Fire has so much good, like rich description of food. Yeah, for sure. It was really one of the books that convinced me that it was something worth paying attention to in prose. Yeah, and it's not even like you need it. It doesn't... All those details don't necessarily add, like, plot information. It's just 
nice to to think about like what is happening what people are feeling with their senses yeah it's, it's texture yeah and it gives the, you the vibe of the of the scene and that's my shit that's all i care about yeah we love a vibe love a vibe is um, that it is that the best we can do no there's got okay okay did you ever read the red wall books when you were a kid i did but i don't remember them at all i as a kid i found them atrociously boring <laughs> i loved them when i was little like probably nine or ten to thirteen i was super into them that um, seems like the right age yeah yeah i even wrote a letter to brian jacques one time and he was very nice and responded Aww. yeah just a just a really sweet guy by all accounts that's wonderful so all of his books have like really detailed descriptions of feasts in them they're really famous for it mm -hmm. and he's always describing this crazy like potato and beetroot pie that moles make in their little mole holes <laughs> and to me that's that's the best meal anyone could ever have is if a little mole brought you a pie yeah that sounds great i would just go nuts for that i used to make a lot of pies like dinner pies just basically like whatever vegetables i had on hand put it in a pie but I don't cook very much anymore. I got depressed and stopped cooking. Oh, I I really feel that. <laughs> um, I feel like I've been too depressed to cook for like three years now. Yeah, same. Um, I do love to make pie, though. Mm -hmm. It's just I only make it if someone's coming over. Yeah, it's really satisfying. Just the roundness the self-containedness yeah i love a thing that it just sits in its little dish and fills it perfectly mm -hmm. it's like a little rounded at the top beautiful just just a little guy yeah <clears throat> um oh man fictional food do you know what i have always wanted to eat is carmela's big ziti from the sopranos <laughs> i bet oh, that's really good oh my god everything she makes looks so fucking incredible mm. that's like the most upsetting hits on that show are when carmela throws food out because she's angry or something uh-huh it's perfectly good what are you doing mm. Yeah, throwing food out is stressful. Um, yeah, I I have a really hard time doing it or yep. like dealing with it. But then I also hate and have a hard time dealing with rotten food. So, yep. What fun it is to have a stupid eating disorder. I know it's like a time bomb in the fridge. And then also to be poor. Yep. Okay. <laughs> well, that was a fun question. Um, yeah. Yeah yeah sorry sarah i might come up with a really good answer for this like next week yeah it'll it'll certainly be on my mind i'm like thinking back through my last song of ice and fire read through and all the stuff that they eat oh i actually just thought of something Hit me. um yes okay so uh in the golden compass uh the main character uh has like an incident where she goes and stays in the kingdom of the armored bears for a little while they're these like giant sentient polar bears who wear armor uh and i happen to have it open on my desktop here uh so i can read you this description Ah, a fresh seal lay on the snow. The bear sliced it open with a claw and showed Lyra where to find the kidneys. She ate one raw. It was warm and soft and delicious beyond imagining. Eat the blubber too, said the bear, and tore off a piece for her. It tasted of cream flavored with hazelnuts. Wow. Doesn't that sound amazing? That sounds so good. Would love to just eat a raw seal served by a bear. <laughs> yeah, that would be a pretty exciting meal. Oh, so you know what I want to eat every single time I see it? I mean, like, I'm 
I am what I am. If I see food in fiction, I immediately want to eat it. Um, yeah. But the profiteroles in The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Oh, yeah. Looks so fucking good to me. I would just go to town on that mountain of chocolate-covered pastry. Just go ape shit on some profiteroles. Yeah. I'm always saying that. <laughs> Next question? Yeah. If you had to pick a... Pa- oh, sorry. This question comes from Roxy. Hi, Roxy. Hi, Roxy. If you had to pick a patron saint, who would you choose? Oh. That's easy. St. Francis of Assisi. That wasn't... I'm sorry, that rhymed. Good God. Uh, I There was a time in my life when I seriously considered becoming a poor Claire. So that's an easy call for me. Um, but aside from St. Francis, uh, I, I really like St. Eulalia, who, um, is one of the, like, Diocletian persecution, uh, virgin martyrs. Um, and... She is, among other things, the patron of uh, like precipitation, because when she died, she uh, uh, a dove flew out of her mouth, and everybody was really freaked out. So she, uh, they ran away, because um, that she was being tortured by pagans, obviously. Um, so they just left her there and, and, uh, until some Christians came and buried her, snow started falling out of season to cover her body. That's really beautiful. Yeah. I gave this a lot of thought and I think I would choose, uh, St. Potomiana, who was an Alexandrian early Christian in, in Egypt in about 200 AD. And when it was discovered that she and her mother were Christians, Potomiana uh, was handed over to gladiators, basically to be raped. And the, the Christian hagiogra- hagiography around it claimed she was raped hundreds of times. And when she still refused to recant, she had boiling pitch dropped over her entire body. Wow. That's hardcore. Yeah. I kind of think it's amazing that they, uh, allowed her to actually be raped in this story because a lot of, uh, martyrdom stories for women include like, uh, attempted rapes that are thwarted by miracles or else the woman just spontaneously dies of, of purity (laughs) of, of being unable to suffer a rape. Well, I mean, the language in, in Christian texts is very much like she was abused and Mm -hmm. dishonored. Yeah. Um, Still. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty straightforward. I think. It is. Yeah, that's that's who I would choose. It's very badass saint. Yeah, I just like, I mean, for obvious reasons, I feel a lot of connection to women who've been through a lot of horrible things or been raped many times. Mm-hmm. And it is a fucking metal way to die. <laughs> it is next sure this comes from phoebe are there any classic slash golden age of hollywood actors or directors you have particular feelings or opinions about oh yeah celebrity crushes overrated people like pre-code and 40s uh laurence olivier yeah 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 just extremely extremely hot man yeah fuck fuck me all the way up yep uh Um, 
Yeah, when are you going to write me that fanfic? I know, about- I know. I I owe you so many fics. I know. Well, see, I had uh, written a little dialogue for a a scene where uh, Lawrence Olivier is getting a blowjob from Vivian Lee. Uh, and then I was like, Gretchen, can you fill this out for me? <laughs> Did you ever send me the text? It was literally just what we said in chat. Oh, okay. That's all there was to it. Um, Orson Welles, I think, is very sexy. Extremely. All stages of Orson Welles are just Every very Orson Welles. Um, and I think he gets hotter as he gets older and fatter and more pompous and bearded. Mm-hmm. I am a big fan of F.W. Murnau. Um, I really love Nosferatu and Faust. They're really beautiful movies and they're incredibly creative. Like there's very little in modern special effects and camera work that does not descend directly from them. Also, someone stole his skull a few years ago and it it hasn't been found since. Yeah. From his crypt. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's what you get for having a crypt. Yeah, for sure. You think they're fucking it? The skull? Yeah. I guess. Why else would you steal a skull? Right. Like, what else could be a strong enough drive? I guess, like, it's kind of cool to own F.W. Murnau's skull. I guess, if you're, like, the world's biggest F.W. Murnau stan. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to be, right? Yeah. Maybe they're drinking wine. It's like, can you even... You can't, like, talk to people about it. No. You... The, your reward is just having the satisfaction of personally knowing that his skull is at your house as a paperweight or something. <laughs> maybe, interesting. Uh, maybe they drink wine out of it. Like, um, that's that, cool. That creepy fascist poet, Gabriel D'Annunzio. <laughs> um, I mean, this is what you get if you build a fancy building that's like, hey, I'm famous and my skeleton is in here. Yeah. Someone's going to come and take your skeleton. Sorry, man. Yeah. You had it coming. I feel I like I get should... canceled for saying, for victim blaming people <laughs> whose skulls were <laughs> stolen. Well, I mean, look at the way he was interred. He was asking for it. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Listen, I'm, I'm putting it on the record now. Not that I haven't said this many times, but I want a Quaker burial and unmarked grave. That's what I want. Yeah, just put me in the ground somewhere. I don't give a fucking shit. And honestly, I don't I I don't care if somebody steals my skull, I don't think. Yeah, unless I'm radically incorrect about what happens to the human body after <laughs> I die. I, I you can do whatever you want with it. Right, like, oh no, it's going to keep me from being raptured. <laughs> God, imagine having to come back. No. <laughs> please, please do what you can to keep me from being raptured. Yes. Steal any party. Give me a posthumous tattoo. I mean, I already have some, but another one couldn't hurt. Just one more that says, fuck off, God. <laughs> yes. More clearly than your body of work has done. Yes. Oh, Christ. Um, no. I really, really love Judith Anderson, who is in... Two of my favorite noirs, Rebecca by Alfred Hitchcock, who is also a pre-code director I really love, and Lara, another single word woman's name title, (laughs) a woman who goes missing. She plays such a cool character in that she's like this older woman who has a young dandy for a lover who's played by um, Vincent Price, who is just so enormously tall and blonde and handsome and she knows he's a piece of shit who isn't faithful to her but she's just like well fine i want what i want it doesn't matter that he's no good that rules yeah it's so Uh, good i have a uh, opinion about um the end of the affair (laughs) hit me (laughs) no the book the not the book the movie 
which is that it is one of the worst movies that I've ever seen. Oh, it's the fifties one. Unbelievably bad. And I'm not just saying that because the book is very dear to me, which it is. I think even just objectively as a movie, it's really bad. Oh, it's garbage. Just dreadful. It. I remember watching that with you. I don't even think we were drunk. And it was I just... I got like, drunk fast. It was just borderline unwatchable. Like, the most slapped together dreck I've ever seen. It's funny because there's a scene in that book. I forget if it was in the movie. Uh, it was definitely in the 90s movie where, because the protagonist is a novelist, as we've previously discussed in the podcast, uh, he takes his girlfriend to a, uh, a film based on one of his novels. And he's <laughs> like, oh, this is, this is really embarrassing. I didn't write that. This is like they took all of his things that were really deep and made them really stupid. And it's like incredibly stressful and self-conscious. And it's like, I see you, Graham Greene. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I know you're writing from experience here. And I, I, I wonder, I can only imagine the horror or maybe he loved it. I don't know. Maybe he thought it was a great movie. You never know. But it's funny that he wrote that scene and then it happened again in the book that the movie was made you know <laughs> whoops that's uh, who was the guy who's the actor who played morris in that i don't remember but i know his name's van something and it's in it's a completely insane choice that doesn't make any sense he had red hair yes he did which you can tell even though it's in black and white and it's very embarrassing redheads don't belong in most stories that is an interesting position. <laughs> I would like to see less redhead representation. Um, no, actually, that's true. I'm, I'm going to stand by that, um, especially in comics. I think they there's like... They're for sure disproportionate. Because it's striking and easy and like a um, process printing yeah. to make red hair stand out. Uh, there's too many redheads, not enough people of color. Like, as far as I'm concerned, there should be no redheads and just distribute it as you see fit among other people who are not in the comics because Jesus Christ. <laughs> but I also, I do feel like um, having red hair is a weird trait that uh, like it's sort of like having a character with a deformity like you only do it if you're making a point about the character to be like oh this character there's something weird about them right yeah uh, that's very true a redhead is almost always marked out for something in fiction and, and like you've talked about many times often it's that they're really sexual or desirable and then like, but you don't, you don't usually have a character who has red hair, who's just like a normal person. Uh, <laughs> and also see like the reason that I, I feel like uh, Bendrix can't be a redhead is that he is just like, I don't know. He's so sulky. Uh, yeah, he's not. He's not bellicose at all. No. He's just a, a mopey, whiny, grumpy, and he's so. He's, he's okay. So, he's such. Uh, he's so bitter. Like nobody yeah. has ever told him he's special. Yes. Which happens to you all the time when you have red hair. Everybody tells you how special it is. Especially when you're a child. So I feel like he would have a different personality. But also, also in the book, <laughs> this is the end of the affair episode now. Bendrix has like a, a 
slight unevenness in his legs, which is why he doesn't get drafted. Right. And then in both movies, they were like, oh, he was injured in the war, I guess, because that's sexier. Um, it, God, it undercuts it so... Just it yeah. completely misses the point. But his, like, weird feelings of of uh, inadequacy and unfitness yeah. are, I think, tied to that. Like, Graham Greene could easily have made him be injured in the war and he didn't that was a deliberate choice and i think a smart one yes i think so too it even though he's a really really normal guy in a lot of ways he's set apart from all the other men around him and it informs pretty much everything that he thinks and does yeah and like it's not a coincidence that then like the couple that he becomes involved with like henry is a civil servant you know, like there's a, a participation in the business of of humanity that he Bendrix feels exempt from. You know, yeah. and in the in the '90s adaptation, what is um Jesus? It just flew out of my head. Bendrix's lover, the other main character, Sarah. What? Sarah? Sarah. She's played by Julianne Moore. Yep, a redhead. Very famous Stop putting redheads in this story. It really Uh, um, like destroys any possibility of of believability. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like that either. I mean, partly because in the book there's like a very moving passage about uh, Bendrix wanting to specifically describe her features and even her hair he mentions the color of her hair which is brown uh because he can't bear the thought of somebody reading the story and picturing some other woman not sarah god yeah that part is extremely tender the whole book is just a a bleeding open wound it's a real it's a real heartbreaker yeah, it really is. Um, but yeah, again, I don't think Sarah could be a redhead. No. She's too, too much a part of the world around her. And she she's just like too uncertain about like she has a hard time believing that she's beautiful and like not that redheads don't, but like people are constantly telling me that my hair is beautiful. Like probably once a week, some stranger will tell me that. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I don't, I just don't think that the, I don't think it's her. Also, I just like the idea of her having brown hair. Yeah, I just think it fits better. Um, But to bring things back to (laughs) Hollywood. Hollywood, right. The other director I wanted to mention is Joseph von Sternberg. Um, And the last actor I wanted to mention was Emil Jannings, who is the star of his movie, The Last Command, which fictionalizes the Russian revolution and follows this Tsarist general who falls in love with a revolutionary soldier. And it's just like, I'm a really big fan of silent film the past like five or six years. I've watched a fair amount and I think it does a lot of things that movies have since started to ignore And I also just love to watch the faces. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I got into it because I enjoyed Sunset Boulevard so much, which is a a talkie that is about the age of silent film fading. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's immersive and hypnotic. You have to pay attention. You have to watch every detail it's a really good way to sort of flex the muscle of art literacy. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's a medium that's assuming a captive audience. Yeah. You're not supposed to be watching a silent film like while you're doing your taxes or whatever. <laughs> right. You're supposed, you're supposed to, go to, to be there thing. in a dark room where it's the only thing you can see. Yes, exactly. And it's very large. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know that I have anything more insightful to say than that Sternberg is a great director and Emil Yanning is a wonderful actor who can do all sorts of crazy shit with his face that'll make you feel all sorts of emotions. It's been a really long week. <laughs> <laughs> to my mind, doing crazy things with your face that makes you feel a bunch of emotions is really the essence of acting. <laughs> yeah, I'm just firing on all cylinders tonight. No, I'm serious. I mean, I mean, also, it, it's, it's, you're not at your most articulate, but also, like, yeah, seriously. Yeah, I just, I love, to love watch a good people. facial expression. I love to watch people use their faces. Mm-hmm. Um, I showed our mutual friend, our beautiful baby boy, Hazel. Hi, Hazel. I don't know if they're listening. Probably not. They're, they're not here. They went home. <laughs> no, I mean, I know they're not here, but I don't know if they listen to the podcast. They probably oh. have cool things to do. Yeah, they're very cool. We did a great job raising them. I know. Um, anyway, I showed them Faust the other day. And oh, yeah. Just every scene where the two leads, Faust and Mephisto, are on screen, you can, like, physically observe the push and pull between their body language. Mm-hmm. And you can watch each expression sort of bloom and mirror on each man's face. And it's so fucking engrossing. You could watch it forever. God, I love that. Uh, just like they're, they're working so hard. <laughs> I love it when you can really feel that actors are working off each other. They're yeah. working together like a trapeze act, you know? Exactly. Um, it's very exciting. Yeah, it's it's a, a lovely thing to watch. Shall we go to the next question? Yes, please. All right. This comes from Anne. A-N. What makes for a good fictional version of a real historical figure? Favorite examples? Hmm. I actually have one right off the top of my head. Um, All right. Which is Anne Boleyn from... Hillary Mantle's novels, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. Hmm. It is one of the most interesting and exciting fictionalizations of a historical figure I've ever seen. And I don't know that there's like a rhyme or reason or rule to it. I think that Mantle, despite her recent embarrassing behavior in the news, is an exceptional historian and writer and finds a really interesting thread in the real life of Anne that she then extrapolates out into someone that it's very interesting to read about. I don't know how closely it relates to the real Anne Boleyn, but the real Anne Boleyn doesn't exist anymore and there's no way to ever access it. Right. Um, she's sort of famously historically murky a lot of documents around her are highly prejudicial because of court factionalism and like revisionism after she died and Henry decided she was a witch or something. Um, yeah, I'm sure he totally believed that. Yeah. He, he was just like a really cool guy who always said a bunch of genuine things that he really believed. Some people just have terrible luck with women, you know? Yeah. It's really sad. Poor dude. So sad when it, when a nice guy just keeps getting played by witches. Yeah, and just has to keep beheading them while while he's crying because he's really in self defense. He hates doing it. He hates to do it. Yeah, um, but in those books, you can see from the first moment you meet her that she has all the skills she needs to climb to the top, and none of the skills she needs to stay there. Like, she is so good at the sort of 
push and pull of interpersonal emotional manipulation that is courtly romance. And she's so good at walking along the edge of propriety, teasing men and creating these sort of unspoken agreements with them. But she's so, so bad at having authority over other women. And that's ultimately what kills her. Hmm. Um, you know, aside from the fact that she can't give Henry a son, which the, the book pretty heavily implies. And this is my opinion as an amateur historian is mostly down to Henry being really, really sexually picky and finicky and sensitive. (laughs) I think it, I, I think I don't know how much of a consensus this is, but that it was like a RH factor thing. Do you know about this? I don't know how many people are even aware of this if they have not like physically born a child. But if you have, um, like, for example, I, I have O negative blood. Uh, my ex-husband has a positive blood type. And for the same reason that like, if like, I can't, receive a blood donation from a positive blood type because or if i remember correctly no negative can because uh <laughs> nurses are listening to this and screaming uh <laughs> because the the positive rh factor is treated like a like an invasive thing um if you have a negative blood type, if you don't have that, then your body is like, oh, fuck, no, we got to get rid of this. Uh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I've, I've heard about this happening. I, I didn't know what it was called. So uh, if a woman with a negative blood type uh, is carrying a child that has a positive blood type, then uh, her body will basically just reject the pregnancy. Right. There's a really high chance that it, it will self-terminate. Mm-hmm. And... Now, you know, they, I had to get horrible shots for it, which I'm, uh, actually Frank also has a negative blood type, so they turned out not to be necessary, but, uh, that, that I think is one of the prevailing theories that, which is why she was able to carry one child to term the first one. And then after that, because, uh, it's the first pregnancy that like exposes you to it. And then after that, Your look, I'm not a fucking doctor. <laughs> this was a long time ago that this happened to me. This was 12 years ago. Uh, For a second, there, I thought you meant it was a long time ago that you failed to bear Henry the eighth and heir. <laughs> it was a very long time ago, Gretchen. I don't like yeah. to talk about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> How fucking dare you? Um. Anyway, I think, no, not that I'm opposed to smearing Henry VIII for his general weirdness. I'm sure he was weird around sex, too. He was a huge piece of shit. Yeah. Um, a word? Yeah. Can, this this podcast is officially canceling Henry VIII. Oh. We're coming out as anti-Henry VIII. Yeah, we are. Um, yeah. So the Reformation is I don't I don't really know he had a pretty divided stance on it. I don't know what would make him angry. But what makes a good fictional historical character? What makes a good fictional historical character? I don't think that the answer to this is any different from what makes a good character. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you are never going to be able to depict a historical person in fiction in a way that is going to please everybody who is a fan of the historical person. Right. Because so like it right out of your head. Don't even yeah, try. Even if that person shows up, like if you do a little magic and you conjure Anne Boleyn in your room and you're like, you know, she's like, here, let me tell you exactly how to depict me and all the things that I would do. There's still going to be people who read your book and be like, Anne Boleyn would never do that. Yeah. Um, and if it is an old enough person 
then the character that has been kind of distilled by history is going to be vastly different from who the actual person was anyway. Right. Basically no relation. Yeah. So then you can choose to talk about the person as they exist as an idea that you and I interact with. Uh, or you can choose to talk about this hypothetical historical figure who is probably really different from that. And as we're always saying about historical accuracy, like if you make it really historically accurate, it's not going to be relatable or interesting to modern audiences. Exactly true. I think I've only ever written one directly historical character. Um, Maybe two. Because I think the well, the confessor in No End Will Be Found is inspired by a real priest, but he's not supposed to be him. Um, but I did write about Henry II in Ego Homini Lupus. And, you know, it was like a fucking thousand years ago. Who cares what he was like? I. Yeah, you literally can't know. Even a celebrity who died last week. Right. You're, you, there's just no way to be accurate there are bios floating around for me on the internet that say all kinds of untrue shit and like (laughs) yeah well yeah and a lot of times it's like i can see how they came to that conclusion like maybe i said something that was ambiguous and they interpreted in a different way from how i meant it uh even contemporary biographies are not um idiot proof no absolutely not. they're not infallible uh so so i think that you have to choose to depict a fictional version of this person and therefore to embrace what they have come to represent to some yeah. extent and also like in fiction you We've talked about this before, too, that you have to think about the story first. Like, I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, I have these characters and the characters tell me what to do. Like, if you're going to write an entire story that has a, a, it doesn't necessarily have to have an arc, but you do know you you have to be able to finish it. Uh, you have to be thinking about what happens in the story and you have to make characters who can do the things that you need to be done in the story and that is going to influence your characterization in i think a more important way than any kind of historical accuracy or like granular inspection of the character as an individual yeah absolutely i think like an approach that i took in ego hominy was to just find a few historical events and sort of build an idea of the person that I needed to represent around them and then consider how it fit into my overall story and how I could make it reflect the themes of that story and move its, its arc along. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess my, my advice boiled down is just, you know, don't overthink it. Don't worry about getting it right. (laughs) Love to talk about something for like 15 minutes and then be like, so don't overthink it. Yeah. We would never. No. Huh. All right. Want to do another one? Yeah, let's do another one. All right. This comes from April W9. Do you have a favorite fairy tale slash folk tale? Hmm. Yeah, probably. Probably lots. Uh... I, I like the little mermaid a lot. That's yeah. not, I mean, I wonder whether it can be considered a folk tale. I'm, it's not because it's not told by the folk. Like we know exactly whence it comes. I would say it counts as a fairy tale more or less. It's a fairy tale. Yeah. I mean, I like the fisherman and his soul too, which is by Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Uh, which is sort of like the inverse of that story. Um, 
I like Snow White and Rose Red. I like Red, uh, not Red Riding Hood. I don't care for Red Riding Hood. I like I like Snow White separate from Snow White and Rose Red. This is actually two different characters in folklore who are called Snow yeah. White, who are not the same woman. Uh, I like Snow White a lot. Um, Bluebeard, Bluebeard's really cool. Bluebeard's awesome. I'm a big fan of um, Tatterhood. Like Chamber. Uh, oh well, for sure the Bloody Chamber fucking rips. Angela yeah, Carter, the, the we're big God. fans of the Bloody Chamber over here. Um, donkey skin, I like donkey skin. Donkey skin is so good. Um, I was saying a second ago, I really Sorry. like. <laughs> it's okay. Tatterhood when I was a kid, which is like a Norwegian story about it's classic. Like this queen really wants a kid so she pays a witch and the witch is like here i'm gonna give you this pot and you prick your thumb and squeeze two drops of blood into it and then two flowers will grow and one of them's gonna be all gnarly and the other one's gonna be real pretty and you eat the pretty one and you give me the gnarly one and we're good um and then the queen is like well i decided that i really wanted two daughters so i ate them both <laughs> and no the witch is like you don't do that you bitch um and so the queen has one normal daughter and then a daughter who is born with like a big tattered cloak and a soup spoon riding a goat what yeah <laughs> um and it's like it's a really she classic... was born riding a goat yes <laughs> amazing they don't, they don't get into the mechanics of it um mm. But it's like a really classic fairy tale, like, you know, the the two princesses who are opposites and they go on adventures and there's ogres and trolls and shit. It's great. Yeah, that's very good. Um, when I was a kid, I had this really huge book of collected Native American folklore that a Native American writer had gathered over the course of like 25 years and written down. I think down. I've seen that book at your parents' house. Yes, yes, you have. It has all those beautiful traditional illustrations on the front. I recognized it because we had the same the same one at Quaker meeting. We did like a year-long unit about Native American religions at, in first day school. Because for some reason, my first day school decided not to teach Quakerism, but to teach world religions instead. <laughs> um, Classic. Yeah. There were lots of, lots of stories in that that I loved as a kid. Uh, all the stuff about Glooscap, the mighty warrior, like getting defeated by a baby. Uh-huh. Um, and... The, the classic coyote and wolf stuff where they're like creating and devouring the world and <sighs> um I was it's not that I'm not into folklore anymore but I was certainly much more into it when I was like a teenager mm -hmm. I wonder why that is hmm. yeah <sighs> Because you're not really very interested in other people when you're a teenager, so like specific stories are not as appealing. That is an insight I can believe. Just a guess. Yeah. Huh. I did my best for that one. Give me another one. All right. <laughs> uh, this comes from E.F. Biggs Hosen. Mm. You get to write an episode of any existing TV series. Which show is it? What happens in your episode? Hmm. Hmm. We should, we should decide. Does that mean like a TV show that's on right now? Seems like it does, but I don't, I'm not really up on TV shows that are on right now. Honestly, neither am I. Um, I only ever see shows if Sean is reviewing them and I'm interested in them. Right. So. Um, I typically only watch what I'm going to review or yeah, that's pretty much it. 
I'm going to say, actually, I could say uh, a historic materials answer for this too, because they did the first two books and now they're shooting the third book, which is my favorite one, The Amherst Spyglass. And I'm sure they're going to make a terrible mess of it. Uh, and I think I would do a much better job if I wrote it. I, I would agree. write the entire season. Uh, and if I couldn't write the entire season, I would like to write uh, the chapter where they kill God. Hell uh, yeah. Authority's End is the name of oh, the chapter. God gets killed so and then also God's favorite sub-God gets killed. <laughs> uh, yeah, God's sub-God. Like that basketball player. <laughs> what? There's a basketball player named God Sham God. Really? Yeah. That's an incredible name. It's a fucking beautiful name. Yeah, well, I mean, literally, yes, the God and the Sham God do die. I'm sorry about these spoilers. You should know that this is a book series about uh, killing God. Yeah. Which anyway, we all I feel strongly that I would do a much better job than whoever is doing it now. I think so, too. I think that that show struggles with a kind of like... The writing is bad. The dialogue yeah. is very bad. It's stodgy. Oof. I think you would do a much better job with it. I agree. That's that's the best I can do for you. I feel like... You know, if they're... I don't know if they're doing a third season of The Terror, which was fantastic. Ooh. And then they swapped out the entire crew and they went on to do other things. And it became bad to mediocre but if they're doing a third season what i would really like to do is i would like to adapt our friend sarah's uh, oh hell yeah vampire revolution book that's set in pre-revolutionary france right before the beginning of the terror um which gives you another opportunity to like pun on the name yeah to have a reason to have the show be named that um I think I could do a really good job with that. It's like so lush and detailed and it's very like vibes first, plot second, but it also has a really direct story that it would be easy to tell in ten episodes. Yeah, that would rule. I think that's like that's a dream project. Mm -hmm. It's about a troop of vampire actors who have just sort of existed on the fringe of Paris for like decades at least and it's about the dawn of industrialization and like economic parasitism and mortality All the stuff and that vampire stories should be about yes god it's so fucking smart yeah and it's not like the vampires aren't sexy the vampires are sexy oh they're so sexy but they're also it's like a vampire story for a reason. Yes, it absolutely is. Oh anyway, my God. I really hope that you all get to read it. I hope that Sarah will publish it. I cannot imagine she won't. That book is fucking candy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Give me one more question. We'll wrap this up. Okay. I'm going to need to open Twitter because we've exhausted our backlog. Listening for the sounds of screams. Twitter is very bad, folks. Oh, it's so Doesn't fucking it just horrible. make you want to give up? Yes, it makes me want to lie down in the road and fucking die. This was probably the worst week of Twitter that I've this ever experienced. It's really bad. It's a very bad week of Twitter. Yeah. Unfucking real. Um, I'm. In fact, I have started to make a plan to pull way back from Twitter at the very latest before my my second book comes out. You're like an occupying force making plans to leave the country. Honestly, it doesn't feel very different. 
Okay, here's stage one. Hopefully within five years, they'll be self-sufficient. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm under no illusions. Twitter will collapse immediately when I delete my account. I know. All right. This comes from Inniscutcheon. What's an example of a piece of horror fiction from your childhood that really affected you at that time? Art that is made for kids, and especially horror for kids, is such an interesting niche to me. Hmm. Uh, phone call from a ghost, which Ooh. I talked about on like the very first episode of the podcast. Yeah, I was, think a, was yeah. a book of, or it's probably like the third, the third, I think, where we talked about disembodied voices, right? Yeah. Uh, it was like a, a scholastic book fair kind of a book about just ghost stories about people getting phone calls from ghosts. Some of them are urban legends that I recognized later. Uh, some of them probably made up from whole cloth. That definitely freaked me out. Um, another thing <laughs> is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, which I had never seen until recently. But when I was a little girl, I read a novelization of it. Uh, just like... I was hanging out with my mom's best friend, had two two sons, two boys who were maybe like four and six years older than me, like too old to really want to hang out with me. But they would, right. you know, so like they would play video games and I would just hang around in their room and watch them play video games because they wouldn't let me play. Uh, so one of them had this book and the scene, uh, there's like the the scene where they're having this feast of all these disgusting foods, like soup with eyeballs in it and stuff. And then uh, shortly after that, they uh, witness this like incredibly gruesome human sacrifice where they like rip a man's heart out while he's still alive. And then they like slowly lower him into lava. Uh, that, I don't know how old I was when I read that. I want to say maybe eight or nine. It was like incredibly traumatic to me. Jesus. Like I had nightmares about it for a long time. It was like, you know how it is when you're a kid where you just like, you carry that image with you. And then like, sometimes it just like sneaks up on you and attacks you. It was like for weeks I was, and it actually, it still is upsetting to me. I tried to watch that movie recently because it was on Netflix. And when it got to that scene, I couldn't do it. I was like, you know what? I can't. Oh, honey. <laughs> And I really think, like, it's a very silly movie. It's really stupid. Yeah. Uh, so I really do think that is horror for children. Um, but it fucked me up really bad. Maybe yes. maybe that's why I became so interested in human sacrifice. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, maybe. you know, it's a formative hole to put in you. Mm -hmm. um, and spectacularly racist, by the way. Oh my God, so racist. Just an incredibly offensive movie on every level, actually. Yes. When I was really young, like six or seven, I think, my dad used to read me The Hobbit. And I was so scared of Gollum. I was really? so fucking scared of Gollum. I found him so upsetting. And like who knows how much I'm, I'm relitigating the past here, but looking back, it really upset me how ruined Gollum was, how there was no way to make his life better. Yeah. Wow. And how pathetic he was. And it made me upset that his, his pitifulness was dangerous. Yeah. And I, I, was just very afraid of him. I think afraid of ending up like him somehow. Yeah. It was, I've, I've also, I don't know if that's where it stems from, but I've also always been afraid of caves and the underground and mm -hmm. that whole part was really tough for me to take. I used to have nightmares about it. And then, oh yeah. I find that really upsetting. Yeah. Like the entire, uh, goblin town, thing it's really it's it's some really tough stuff and that's like definitely when, horror for when, children when bilbo gets knocked out and then he wakes up and realizes that he's alone 
and he doesn't know which direction to go because he doesn't know where he is and both directions look the same. That's just appalling. Hell, hell on earth. Literally the worst thing I can imagine. Yes. Um, I loved the secret. Also him realizing that he can't smoke is devastating. Oh, (laughs) even though, you know, like he says, like it's good because he would have been caught if he had been smoking, but like, he feels for his pipe and it's there and he's got his tobacco and then he doesn't have any matches and he's like, oh, I wish I was fucking dead. Yeah. Fuck it. It's very good. I really liked the secret of Nim as a kid. And that's, oh, that was so scary. It's really scary. It's like, I still think about that. There's like a flashback in the movie where you see them like getting injected with drugs and stuff. Oh, it's so fucking upsetting. Um, yeah. That animal testing was like a big thing at that time. There was like in Fern Gully, there was like a whole animal testing thing. Yeah, it's it was a really big issue. Um, I feel like we're not trying to make kids learn about animal testing anymore. No, I well, this is this is not a, a holistically informed opinion. I do not watch every kids movie that comes out, but I do. <laughs> that's yeah. They seem much more oriented on, like, just sort of being nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the children's movies of the 80s and early 90s, which is when I was at my most impressionable, uh, were much more didactic. Like, there was much more of an idea of, like, we're going to educate children about issues. Yeah. Especially environmentalism. Environmentalism was very big then. For yeah. all the good that did. Speaking of the the power of art, laser focused <laughs> like a custard pie. Yeah, it. Uh, Captain live, Planet did nothing. We live in an endless cycle of proving that art cannot do those things. <sighs> but what always got me about the Secret of Nim was the scene where the family's home starts to sink into the mud. Oh God. Oh, it was just horrible, which also, of course, makes me think of the... Yep, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> never-ending story scenes yes. horse drowns. Traumatized millions a of generation. children. A generation. And you know what? That's fine. I'm fine with it. Yeah. I think you're... it was a really good scene. Yes, it's, it's beautiful. And... and also, it's, you know, it's important for... Uh, Atreyu to like you know continually he has these moments where he kind of has to be alone with himself yeah and that's part of his quest and his challenge because Bastion also is struggling with being forced to be alone with himself yeah so yeah like of course he loses he's got to lose his horse it's sad but sorry Artex yeah. That horse got so sad he fucking died. Mm, I really just like it's just I like that dolphin that fell in love with the woman. Oh, I think about that poor dolphin all the time. He fell in love with the marine biologist, and then when she moved on to another job, he just went to the bottom of his little enclosure and stopped breathing voluntarily because dolphins do that. He was just like, "I'm done. I got nothing left." He just killed himself. I. We're so lucky that it's not that easy to kill yourself as a human. Yes, we are. It's really very hard to eject from the mortal coil. Yes, it is. I mean, there's just, uh, the the monkey brain is so good at saying, no, you don't actually want to. Yeah. And also, like, our bodies are, it's surprisingly hard to kill something. Yes. Very difficult. And, you know, surprisingly easy in the case of an accident right well anyway you've been listening to the lament configuration podcast (laughs) you can find us on twitter at lament config pod all one word uh at anchor.fm slash lament configuration i think uh we've got a discord it's in the twitter profile it's very good of you to indulge us in this way If you want to edit the podcast for free, let us know. Good night. (laughs) Good night.